Welcome to the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Save podcast. I'm your host, Darla Simpson, coming to you from beautiful North Vancouver, British Columbia, on the traditional lands of the Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Hello, listeners. I'm Dami. I know I said this last time, but I feel like I really am getting the hang of this hosting thing. So I'm absolutely delighted to be here again today, hosting the podcast for the Lighting Appliance and Automation Joining me today, as always, is Darla. Hello, Darla. Hi, Dami. How are you doing today? I'm feeling pretty chipper, actually. It's a beautiful day here in Victoria. Can't complain. Sun's shining, birds are singing, spring is on its way. <laughs> How are you doing? About the same. Sunshine always makes me happy, and I'm happy to be here to talk about lighting and appliances and home automation. It's one of my awesome. side gigs. <laughs> <laughs> a side gig I must say you're getting pretty proficient at at this point. So like I mentioned before, we're going to be talking about lighting appliance and automation in the home. And this is one that I find interesting because I think it's one that it's a responsibility that falls both on the homeowner and the, the housing manager. I also think it's quite interesting because in this category, we have quite a few low hanging fruits and some really easy chances to take some small but quick energy savings. And today, Dara is going to be taking us through some of those techniques or tactics that we can use to pluck some of these low hanging fruits when it comes to lighting appliances and automation. If you've been following the podcast so far, you probably know at this point that there are some pretty obvious energy guzzlers in the home. You have your home heating that can be up to 50% of your energy consumption. You have domestic hot water that can be up to 25% of your energy consumption in your home. But it's a bit less obvious when it comes to appliances and electronics. So I'm quite curious. Yeah, as you mentioned, Danny, it's it's really a bunch of little things when it comes to lighting and appliances. It's not one big thing for the most part. But the nice thing is it's really easy to influence because, you know, you're replacing them more often. They're not very expensive, so they're relatively easy to fix over time. As compared to like your heating system or replacing windows, which is pretty expensive. Number one, perhaps obviously, is electric resistance heating. We've talked about heat pumps already, so I'm, I'm not going to dive into that. The next one I would say is those always-on appliances. Your fridge, your freezer. So an older fridge running is going to cost about $118 a year with current BC Hydro rates. A modern energy efficient fridge is going to cost about $73. So, you know, not a huge amount of energy savings, but significant. And you can imagine that this adds up over time. Next up is those larger appliances. Sometimes they're called white goods. So this is your dryer, your washing machine, your dishwasher, that sort of thing. The dryer is going to be on the higher end of the spectrum with about $78 a year for say eight loads of laundry a week. And then your clothes washer and dishwasher, they're around $30 a year. And then lighting is, is a bit of a tricky one. It's really highly variable because it depends on what kind of lighting you're using in your home, like what you have in your home already, and then how many lights you have. So how big your home is. It's really, the others are variable as well. You know, if you're doing 40 loads of laundry versus eight loads of laundry, obviously one's going to consume more, but lighting is one of those ones. It's, it's a little bit trickier to pin down. Of course, there's like the small appliances, all those little, little things that we have plugged in the coffee maker, the toaster, your computer, your TV. And those are actually ones that really add up because they're small and they're not running all the time, but there's so many of them and a growing number of them. If you think about it, you know, 20 years ago, not everybody had a cell phone. 
not everybody had a tablet, not everybody had a laptop and a desktop and a printer. So all of those electronic peripherals in particular are really growing. One of the challenges with those electronic peripherals is the, the standby power or the power that they're consuming when they're not actually working. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the podcast as well. Yeah, it really sounds like when it comes to appliances, it's not a, as much death by one swing from a giant sword. It's more like death by a thousand cuts. Definitely. An accumulation of kilowatt here, kilowatt there, a watt here, a watt there. And then over time, over the course of the year, it can be pretty substantial. So we've talked a lot about heating and heat pumps in, in previous podcasts. I'm sure you are all experts on that subject now. So we're not going to dive deeply into that. We are going to go directly into the next biggest item on the list, which is appliances. When it comes to appliances, what do we need to know? What do we need to be looking out for? So when you're buying new, there's two resources that you should be looking for. Both of them are provided by Natural Resources Canada. First one to watch for is the EnerGuide label. It should be on all your major appliances. It's on stoves, fridges, everything like that. It's even on fans now and heat pumps, that sort of thing. So this is a black and white label. It's got lots of information on it, but it's telling consumers about how much energy that particular appliance is going to consume compared to other products. There's this great little scale on it. It shows you what the high end of the appliance is going to use and the low end of the appliance is going to use and what that particular appliance is using compared to other appliances. So really useful label to look at to kind of give yourself an idea of where that particular appliance sits on the spectrum of energy use. The other label that you want to look for is called an Energy Star label. So this is a light blue label with uh, an Energy Star logo on it. It's only given to those models that are meeting or exceeding the premium energy efficiency levels within their category. So these are the most efficient options within that category of fridges or freezers. Even within categories, there's different models and styles and designs. So fridges are a good example. If you have a fridge with the freezer on the bottom in a drawer maybe, versus a fridge with the freezer on the top, those are actually different categories of fridges. Same with your washing machine. A front-loading washing machine is much more energy efficient than a top-loading washing machine. So you can search Natural Resources Canada and you can find lists of Energy Star approved appliances. And that can be your starting point, for example, when you're starting to replace a fridge or a freezer, that sort of thing. Should we then just be strictly looking for Energy Star appliances? Because it seems like using the EnerGuide, there is a scale and you could technically get something with an EnerGuide rating, but it's on the lower end of the scale, which means it's less energy efficient. So my process, if I'm replacing an appliance, I'm going to go to EnerCan. I'm going to search the Energy Star rated appliances first and get that list. Then I might go to a place like Consumer Reports and then find out of those appliances, you know, which one is performing the best, which one is lasting longer, how do I compare all those features, for example, kind of decide what I want. And then I can go and look locally what's available in my region for purchase from a retailer. So that's kind of a three-stage process. And maybe I narrow it down to a particular, you know, three or four different models of appliance. And then I can use the inner guide label as one of my deciding factors once I've narrowed it down to, to a couple of options. That's a pretty well thought out process. I, I definitely know what procedure I'm going to be following in the future when I'm buying an appliance. <laughs> so even replacing a 10-year-old appliance with an Energy Star appliance is going to save you about 20% of the electricity that that particular device is using. When it's time to replace it, you know, going with Energy Star is a, is a real no-brainer. And there are a real range of prices and models. So you should be able to find something that you like. Okay, so that, that's a pretty great outline of what you should do in the very beginning when you're purchasing this appliance. But like we've talked about over and over, that's just one step or the initial step. 
Maintenance is, again, important when it comes to appliances. It's as important for heaters, boilers, as it is for appliances and for making sure that they last a long time. Do you want to take us through some of the things that we can do for some common appliances in our homes when it comes to maintenance? Yeah, and we've really covered this, as you said, in a couple of the other podcasts about working with residents. But, you know, maintaining those fridge and freezer gaskets, your washer, dryer, dishwasher, clean those lint and debris traps and doing a visual inspection of hoses and vents and seals to see if they need repair. And then, you know, the default settings. So the cold water wash or the eco wash on your dishwasher. Again, we've covered those really well in other places. So just a just a reminder that that's all part of making sure that your appliances are running efficiently. So that's it for now for appliances. The second part of this podcast series, obviously, is lighting. What about the lighting aspect? What can we do to reduce our energy use for lighting? As I mentioned before, lighting can be highly variable depending on what's in your home right now. So there's four main lighting types that we see for residential use. So the first one is those old school like Edison bulbs. In an incandescent bulb, about 95% of the energy it uses is going to make heat and 5% is going to make light. So they're little heat bulbs, really. Um, <laughs> super inefficient. Uh, and for most applications in our home for lighting, we're looking at a 60 to 100 watt per hour bulb. So that's pretty significant. So the next best option is halogen bulbs. So they're quite a bit more efficient than an incandescent, about 25% more efficient, but they're operating essentially in the same way. It's resistance. They just have that little halogen gas, which allows the tungsten to be replaced. And it means the bulb lasts longer and it can be run at a higher amperage. Again, these are better at producing heat than light, but they do produce a really nice lighting quality, which is why they still get used so often, but not particularly efficient. And then compact fluorescents are probably the ones, the energy efficiency bulb that most people are familiar with. They were, you know, a really big push to adopt CFLs maybe about 10, 15 years ago. These create light in a totally different way. They excite mercury, which then bounces off that white bit on the inside of the bulb and the white bit fluoresces and that's how we get the light. So this is about 75% more energy efficient than an incandescent bulb. Pretty significant energy savings. So hundred watts incandescent could be replaced with a 23 watt CFL. The challenge with these is they still aren't the most efficient option, and they also contain mercury, which is a bit of a problem when you're disposing of the bulbs. But, you know, 10, 15 years ago, LEDs weren't really available, and that's where the real revolution in lighting has come from in the last 10 years. These LED bulbs, they last up to 50,000 hours, but typically around 25,000 hours. So in your home, that's somewhere between 10 and 15 years of intermittent use. Uh, the problem in the past was the color. So you couldn't get a really good quality white LED. They were always a little bit red or a little bit blue and people complain about the color shift. So they made that breakthrough and now they're everywhere. A hundred watt incandescent could be replaced with an 18 watt LED. So you're saving about 80% of the energy when compared with kind of the old technology. So if your home's got only LEDs, your lighting is a tiny, tiny amount of the electricity you're consuming. If you've got a mix of incandescents and halogens and some of these older technologies, it can be quite a bit more. So it's really, really a mix and quite dependent on what you've got in your home. So from the way you just laid it out, it seems like LEDs are for sure the no-brainer option. Do you want to also outline the costs for these different options? So if the bulb is always on, an incandescent bulb is going to last about a month in that application. Compare that with an LED that is going to last about three years before the light levels drop so much that you want to replace the bulb. They don't actually burn out. The light that they put out just starts to decrease. So over the lifetime of one LED bulb, you would have to replace that incandescent bulb 34 times. You will save on the equipment cost over the life of the LED bulb, even though the upfront cost is quite a bit higher. And then we add on the electricity. So you're saving again, 80-ish percent 
when switching to an LED bulb from an incandescent. So over the lifetime of the bulb, three years, if it's always on, it's going to cost about $19 for the LED and $124 for the incandescent. So multiply this by the number of bulbs you have in your home, <laughs> and you can see that there's a really significant potential for energy savings and cost savings. It kind of sounds like, I mean, I know at the beginning we said these were low-hanging fruits with maybe not as much potential for energy savings, but it sounds like when it comes to lighting, depending on what system you currently have implemented in your home, there is the potential for some pretty significant savings. Yeah, this is one of those ones, if a bulb burns out, put in an LED. It's kind of a, a no-brainer. And if you're feeling really perky, you may even want to go around and just replace those bulbs before they burn out. Okay. So, I mean, now we've, we know how the technology, the different lighting technologies work, and we know what the cost breakdown for each of them is. It, like you said, it essentially seems like LEDs are the winner in every category by a mile. Why is it then that some people still have CFLs or incandescents or halogen bulbs in their houses? Why have we not made the switch completely? I think it's a legacy from LED bulbs with poor color quality. And I also think there's some confusion around getting the right replacement bulbs so one of the things that we need to be aware of when replacing our current lighting with LED lighting is getting the color temperature correct. So if you think about visible light, it ranges across the rainbow from red to blue. And we can produce LED lights all along the spectrum. But in our homes, we're looking for white light or kind of a neutral color. So we measure color temperature in Kelvin. And on the red end of the spectrum around 2700 Kelvin is something like candlelight or sitting around the fire. On the blue end of the spectrum, the scale is about 6500 Kelvin. And that's daylight, which is quite bright and quite blue. So in our homes, we want something around 3000 Kelvin. That's referred to as white or soft white on the bulb packaging. That's gonna be most comfortable for most applications. You do see bulbs in the 4000 Kelvin range and it feels a bit brighter and a bit bluer. It's something called a cool light. Uh, that's usually intended for bathrooms, sometimes kitchens, places where visual acuity is really important, where you need to see those fine details. In a bedroom, you might want to go for something around 2500 Kelvin, which they call a warm light. So again, it's a bit softer and a bit more red. The number one area where I see complaints is in an open area where there's a mix of color temperature bulb. And it's really easy to spot when you walk into a room and, and they've mixed the color temperature. It strains your eyes a little bit and it can feel a bit uncomfortable or unsettling. And so that's something to, to watch for. And definitely if you have like an open common space, you don't wanna be mixing your color temperatures. Okay, so that's lighting temperature in a nutshell. A lighting intensity is another area that I've heard people have confusion about or get complaints about. Is that is that correct? Definitely. So again, most of our lighting is rated for those incandescent bulbs. So it'll suggest a hundred watt incandescent, for example. So you have to make sure you're getting the right wattage of LED or CFL to replace that. And honestly, you can search on Google and there's really good comparison tables that'll show you the equivalencies between the different kinds of lighting. So I really recommend that you just go online, download one of those tables. The other thing you can do is look on the light and it will have a recommended number of lumens. So lumens is the amount of light that's emitted by the source of light, by the bulb itself. And so you want to match the number of lumens in the bulb that you purchased to the number of lumens recommended for the light fixture. And that's going to mean it's going to produce enough light or the, or the right amount of light for the application you're using it in. So you just mentioned something just now, you said lighting fixtures. So it sounds like this lighting equal 
equation is the type of fixture you're dealing with as well. Definitely. The lighting fixture can really make a big difference. And if you think about it, you have one of those enclosed fixtures that maybe only has a small opening at the bottom for the light to come out. It's not going to produce very much light in the general area. It's going to concentrate all that light down on the surface, especially if it has a reflector inside that's going to focus all of the light that that particular bulb is producing right down on the surface. In comparison to that, you might have like a glass bulb just surrounding the light bulb. That's going to provide light in all different directions. It's not going to focus the light, but it's going to light up more of the room in general. Another thing that can affect it is how high from the surface it is. So if you have really high vaulted ceilings and the light fixture is way, way up there, you're going to have to install a much bigger, much brighter light fixture than if you were to drop that down to say six feet and then it only had to travel the extra three feet to actually light up the space that you're using. It's just another thing to think about when we're installing lighting or choosing lighting for our projects. And this is particularly true uh, for exterior lighting, I find. In exterior lighting in particular, you want to make sure that it's useful light. It's not light pollution lighting up the whole neighborhood. So you want to focus the light on the particular part of your yard or your door or whatever it is that you want to light up and nothing else. Um, otherwise, you will get complaints. Okay, so I, I can see how all those pieces fit together. Intensity, lighting, fixture, temperature. Another term that I've heard thrown around is dimmers. And just from hearing that word, it sounds like something that can be used to adjust the intensity of lighting. But do you want to take us through what dimmers are and how they can be used to save energy or even improve lighting comfort? Definitely. So exactly like you described, instead of an off-on switch, it's a little slider, and then you can decide how intense you want the light to be, how much light you want in the space. The nice thing about these is not only can you kind of adjust the mood in the space to whatever it is that you're doing, which is really great for those, again, those big open spaces where maybe you want like a little bit of a softer light, a little bit of, you know, quieting downtime, say around dinner. <laughs> but first thing in the morning, you want to brighten things up. You want it up full. So it allows you to kind of adjust the feel of the space. It also helps you save energy. So if you are adjusting that dimmer down, you're using less electricity. So dimmers are really handy and I strongly recommend them, especially again in those flex spaces that might have multiple uses in a home. They can be really, really useful. The one thing I will say is just make sure that whatever bulbs you're using are dimmer compatible. For example, compact fluorescent bulbs, it does say will fail catastrophically. <laughs> If used with a dimmer or a trilight, that means a great big pop that's very scary and the bulb doesn't work anymore. So <laughs> make sure that you're using a compatible bulb. Most LEDs are compatible. And then for track lighting, you need a line voltage dimmer. So that might be one that you want to talk to an electrician about or have your electrician install. Okay, so it sounds like dimmers are great, like you said, for adjusting intensity of lighting or for changing the mood in a space at the slide of a button. What if I want to control how often a light is on or off? Are there any good options for those? Definitely. So there are lighting timers and lighting sensors. You know, there are fully automated lighting systems that you can get for your home as well. I tend to recommend going with the basics and, and keeping it really simple, but especially for your outdoor lighting, you might want to look into photo sensors and motion sensors. So a photo sensor, it's going to sense when it gets dark and turn the light on. And then a motion sensor is going to sense when somebody's walking by and turn the light on. So those can be really useful for, for saving energy on your outdoor lighting in particular. Uh, one caution about motion sensor light,
lights. If a motion sensor light is flicking on and off all night, you're more likely to get complaints than if it's just on all night. So if you are installing a combined photo and motion sensor light, just make sure that the motion sensor isn't too sensitive um, and is positioned correctly so that it's not going off every time a cat walks by, for example. Yeah, the last thing you want is a floodlight pointed directly in a neighbor's bedroom window flicking on and off maybe three times per hour. Yeah, you're definitely going to get complaints, 100%. Yeah, I would your, your neighbors won't like you very much. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, now, okay, now I feel like I have all the information I need to make some pretty informed decisions about lighting. There is one specific lighting scenario I'm curious about, and that those are the these new fancy, funky indoor lighting bulbs that are hitting the market these days. You know, the ones that you can connect to your phone and you can change the lighting to whatever you want. How do these do for saving energy? Honestly, those color changing LED bulbs aren't really about saving energy. Some folks like them because you can adjust the color temperature and create a mood in the room. They can have different settings. We were talking earlier, you mentioned you saw one that had a Hawaii at sunset setting, which sounds lovely. They can be fun to play around with, but they are fairly expensive and don't really have any energy saving advantage. So all that talk about funky lighting setups that you can get in your home and control with the tap of a button in your iPhone, that's getting us into home automation. Can you give us a little bit about what that is and what that can look like? Yeah, smart home automation really runs a wide range of features that you can add to your home. And it's a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to energy. Some of them are really good for energy efficiency and others are, again, more for novelty. So, for example, you know, some of those smart thermostats can be a really good idea, especially if you're not programming your thermostat or you don't want to program your thermostat. Something like an Ecobee or a Nest, if it's compatible with your heating system, can be really, really valuable. So basically what they do is they learn your pattern and they adjust the heating in your home to when you're home, when you're away, when you're sleeping, that sort of thing. So uh, those can be really advantageous and can help in terms of reducing your energy efficiency. Some of the really fancy systems you can say home lock and it'll lock everything and turn off all the lights and all the peripherals. So on that end, they can really aid your energy efficiency. Most of it though, like electronic locks and all that sort of thing, it's adding electrical load in your house that you didn't have before. So you may actually end up using more energy than you're saving. But again, some of those devices can be really helpful. Here we installed a smart timer for our HRV, for our heat recovery ventilation, so that we can actually turn it off when we leave the house and turn it on when we come home. So, you know, there are definitely smart home applications that can help improve energy efficiency. I feel like ride in the same alley with the new lighting gimmicks that we talked about are some of these smart home, in quotes, automation gimmicks that are hidden in the market too. And like you said, they can actually end up increasing your energy use because, and this is a really nice segue into, into something that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, because they're really good at sucking energy when they're not being used. And this is something that we termed vampire power or standby power at the beginning of the session. Do you want to take us through what vampire power is? What do we mean? What do we mean? when we say that. So standby power is the electricity that's consumed when an appliance isn't doing useful work. So it's energy it's consuming when it's just waiting around for you to use it. And this can range from something really small, like the adapter on your cell phone charger. You know, it's just plugged into your wall. It's continually consuming about one watt an hour. So that's not a ton of energy, but you can imagine the number of cell phones that are out there that could really add up, right? And then on the other end of the spectrum, you might have something like your desktop computer. If it's, you know, in sleep mode, but you still got a ton of tabs open and maybe there's some programs running in the background, just keeping things up to date for when you turn it back on 
that can be as high as, you know, 70 or 80 watts per hour of electricity that it's consuming. You know, you have kind of the two, two potential extremes, especially electronics that have computers in them or are connected to the internet. So like your Alexa or your, <laughs> those sorts of things, those are actually consuming a fair bit of electricity, even when they aren't being used. Yeah. And honestly, Alexa was exactly who I had in my mind. No, no offense, Alexa, but you know, for the one or two times a day you say, Alexa, what time is it? Or Alexa, play this song. It's consuming energy for huge, huge amounts of the day when you're not using it. And so, yeah, those are prime candidates for, for vampire power. Yeah. And that might be an easy one to kind of point at, but even something like a smart TV, that's consuming, you know, somewhere in the range of 50 watts of standby power per hour. So there's some of these hidden devices as well. So if we think about like where most of our electronics are used, it's kind of our entertainment units or our home offices. One of the things you can do is use a smart bar. So for example, with your computer, you can plug your, your laptop into the master switch. You can plug your monitor, for example, into one of the dummy switches. And when you turn off your laptop, it's going to turn off your monitor as well. And it's going to cut the power to your monitor. So you won't be consuming any energy. Most of these switches also have at least two always on options. So for example, if you have your phone, that's also part of your office setup, uh, your phone can be kept on even while all the other peripheral devices are turned off. So this can be an easy way to automate and really cut down on some of that plug load power, again, especially around our, our little home offices or our entertainment units. Okay, so it sounds like smart power bar is a great way to deal with these devices that are sucking energy, essentially, when we're not using them. Are there any other things that we can do in the sphere of home automation or tackling these devices that are using a lot of standby power? Yeah, so the easiest thing, if it's not being used frequently, just unplug it. That's really the best way. A smart strip is a good option, um, especially, again, where you have a whole bunch of appliances in one space. What other recommendations do you have? So one thing that folks might not be familiar with are block heater timers. And these are great in cold climates where you need to plug your car in when it's minus 30. And if you're using a regular extension cord, that's basically drawing current continuously the whole time it's plugged in. But with these timers, they cycle the current on and off. And so that means your car is warm enough to start whenever you want to start it. But they use about half the electricity of just leaving your car plugged in all night. So all of the stuff that you've taken us through, Dala, is really good for if you have an idea of what's using energy in your home, say, for example, you're like, oh, I, I know this appliance, this appliance, this appliance that I could tackle. What if we don't know? What if we have no idea exactly what's consuming energy in the home? What are some steps that we can take to figure that out first before we go on and implement some of the measures we've talked about today? You bet. So there are a number of plug load monitors that you can purchase. And what this does is it's watching the appliances in your home and seeing which appliances are consuming the most electricity. A TED Pro Home electricity monitor, for example, is compatible with Alexa. It's quite expensive. There are very inexpensive versions out there as well, something like the kilowatt, which is, you know, $20 for the very simple version, $40 for the advanced version. Basically, you just plug your electronic into this device and then you plug the device into the wall and it monitors how much electricity it's using over a given period of time. So with that, you can kind of do some testing around your home to see what's consuming electricity and what's not. I often have kids do this as a bit of a science experiment, checking out their home, what different devices are using. So as a housing manager, it might be nice to have a few of these around if people are, are curious or interested and want to find out more. 
Yeah, so at the beginning of this, you probably remember I said I found this topic of lighting, appliances, and automation most interesting because it's kind of one way you can split responsibility between the homeowners and the housing managers. What are the key takeaways for our housing managers on the line and even our homeowners as well? What are some key takeaways from today's session? So for housing managers, you may not be able to control what the residents are doing in their homes, but you can always share information with them about some of the more energy efficient options they have, especially when it comes to things like block heaters and timers or even smart strips. That might be a way to kind of encourage residents to use them. The things that you can directly control, like the kinds of lighting that you install in the homes or the kinds of appliances that you purchase, making sure that those are the most energy efficient options when it's time to purchase or replace an appliance. I have had a fantastic time learning about lighting and appliances and automation for the home, as I'm sure our listeners have as well. So thank you so much for taking us through that today, Darla. Thanks, Demi. It's always a pleasure. Same here. And to you, our listeners, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy days to come along the journey with us, learning about how to make lighting and appliances and automation in your home more efficient. We hope you found this helpful and perhaps have a few new ideas to bring into your work. For more information on the Home Energy Save program or to download the next podcast in this series, please visit Fraser Basin Council's website and the First Nations Home Energy Save webpage. You'll find there a companion resource for this podcast, along with links to incentive programs and resources available to Indigenous communities in British Columbia. You can also sign up for their newsletter to learn about new training opportunities and support programs. This podcast has been developed by SES Consulting as part of the Fraser Basin Council's First Nations Home Energy Safe program. The program is sponsored by the Province of British Columbia, BC Hydro, Fortis BC, and the Real Estate Foundation of British Columbia. Production by Aaron Trazo of Bird Media.